0: Hi, folks. How you doing? I hope this finds you well uh, and you enjoyed our double bill last week. It was great to uh, unleash two episodes for you, both with uh, Ben Caron talking about Sharper, which has done all sorts of amazing things for Apple TV. If you haven't checked it out yet, it's brilliant. It's kind of thriller. That's all I'm going to say about it. And then we also gave you Son Lux, the lads from Son Lux talking about everything everywhere all at once, which last night picked up quite a few SAG awards. So amazing. Huge congratulations to everybody involved. However, Let's talk about the now, shall we? And our latest guest on Soundtracking is Peyton Reed, director of Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantum Mania. Uh, it's the third instalment of the series and it follows our eponymous heroes as they explore the magnificently realised quantum realm, encountering, well, all kinds of fantastical and funny creatures and a few serious ones on the way. Now, as with the other two films, Quantumania is scored by Christoph Beck and it's with one of his cues that we begin. What is this place? Thank you for this film. It was such a treat to watch it. I'm so audible audience as well, and there's nothing better than being, you know, in a community with people watching something and everybody being vocal about it whilst it's happening. It was great.
1: I love people screaming and yelling in a (laughs) theatre. I really do. I mean, even as an audience member myself, I will still go to a movie, and if if something uh, thrills me or exhilarates me, I can't help it. Or if something pisses me off, (laughs) I will still be vocal about. it. I mean, if it, it, has to, it has to. I have to reach a certain point in the movie to reach that point yeah. to be vocal, about it. It, it can happen. Even trailers,
0: you know, I'm all in on the trailers yeah, yeah, as well. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Um, it was, you know, it was laughs, it was gasps, it was kind of whoops. There was just so much, and that's what I think is so wonderful about the film is the the multiple tones that it has. And you know, you've been on this journey from the start with this character through these films. Yeah. And before we talk about music, I wanted to ask about you know, if you, when you started that first film, if you knew where it was going, because there are so many things feeding these stories with MC, you know, in terms of yeah. where it's going next. So when did you know the story of this and when did you know where it was going to go?
1: When we did the first movie um, and we were doing rewrites, Adam McKay and Paul Rudd and I were working on rewrites of that script and we introduced the idea of the quantum realm that had not been in the original drafts. Yeah. And we introduced it as this sort of cautionary tale uh, in the third act of... Uh, Scott has to sort of dip into it to, in order to save his daughter, and he may not come back from it. Of course, he did come back from it. <laughs> um, but we knew that was something we wanted to expand on. By the time we did Ant-Man and the Wasp and they rescued Janet Van Dyne, you never know if you're going to get to make another one. But we had hoped, like, oh, okay, we've, we've, set this, we've set this up, and we've asked a question that we haven't answered yet, which is, what was Janet? What the hell was she doing for 30 years in the quantum realm? Mm. Um, and we felt we owed the audience that answer. So as we started to develop this story, we wanted to answer that. We wanted to take the audience further down into the quantum realm to see what it's really like.
0: Yeah.
1: It allowed us to explore this. You know, The and movies are all about family. It allowed us to explore this idea of secrets that family members might keep from each other. And Janet mm-hmm. obviously has a big one. But it also provided a great venue to introduce Kang the Conqueror, right? That, that there's a reason he's in the quantum realm. He's yeah. been exiled down there. And the idea that he had this prior relationship with Janet Van Dyne and she hasn't mentioned it. That that seemed really strong to us. But yeah, I think it would have been presumptuous in 2014 or 15 to think like, yeah, we're making a trilogy. We're going to be, getting, who knows? <laughs> we were just concerned that our audience is going to accept Ant-Man as a, as a superhero.
0: Yeah, and they do. And this film in particular, I think as well, because your cast is extraordinary. And what I love as well is you've given everybody the opportunity to just really show what they're capable of. You know, I think Paul particularly as well, you know, we know that he's funny. We know yeah. he can do all that. But we get some really, we really get to see the other side of his acting chops in this, I think, as well. Both kind of the action stuff, but the real dramatic stuff as well, I think. Yeah. That's really great to give, to give not just him, but there's, you know, Michelle and, and Jonathan. Oh, my God. You know, the opportunity in the space. Yeah. To do that.
1: It was something that Paul and I talked about early on, that if we got to do a third one we wanted to beat Scott Lang up a little bit, not yeah. just physically, but like, you know, he starts the movie kind of on top of the world. He's <laughs> yeah. resting on his laurels and basking in the victory against Thanos. But um, obviously there's a, a lot that's still going to happen to him. We like that idea. And of course, I know Paul Rudd's capabilities as a yeah. dramatic actor, and we really wanted to explore that and also t- drive toward a thing where it was almost like in the third act he has a little bit of like a a Liam Neeson taken energy where he's just all – he wants his daughter back. And the yeah. idea of like a 400-foot tall version of Paul Rudd doing that totally felt good to us because <laughs> you're hopefully going to be invested in that emotion, this dad rage that he has. But it's also absurd because he's a 400-foot tall giant man <laughs> version of, of that. Um, and that was really sort of the the tunnel thing we were driving toward. But I do also like that by the time we get to the third movie, it is more of an ensemble movie.
0: Yeah. And
1: I think – Paul, Evangeline, Michelle, Michael, and everybody are generous enough actors that they they understand the context because it is a, a story about a, a generational story about family. Yeah. Um, and making room for Catherine Newton's take on now uh, an 18 year old Cassie, Cassie. Uh, and of course Jonathan Majors as Kang, bringing that whole different energy into yeah. Ant Man.
0: Do you give them the opportunity to improv at all? Is there any of that? Because that that particular the scene where Cassie, Cassie and 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 Paul. Ant-Man are, are huge. I'm not going to say any yeah, more In a way, And there's the kind of, and she's like, I'm hungry and all that kind of stuff. Oh, just, yeah. There just feels like there's moments where, because so many of them know these characters, you know, and they kind of know their tone and can yeah. play with it in a way. Was that, uh, did you give them that opportunity?
1: To me, it's it's always an important element. I mean, we script it and we know what we're yeah. doing. But with, with Paul and everybody in these movies, Paul has this way of, you know, we always challenge the material. I was like, <laughs> when you're there in the space and like there's certain jokes that are all on the page, that's great. And then you get into three dimensions, like, wait, that joke's not that funny. Let's make yeah, it yeah, better. Yeah. Finding a, a, a hopefully an unexpected way to get from A to B. And this being Catherine's sort of first uh, journey with us in these movies, one of the main reasons I cast her. Well, every reason, like she's just such a positive energy and, yeah. and force and. You wanted to know that whatever conflicts are going on between Scott and Cassie that there is just there's a love there right? Yeah. and I needed someone who could spar with Paul Rudd, which is not easy because yeah. he's so fast and quick but um I love their chemistry in the movie but improv is always a part of that and you know I I came from an improv background doing upright citizens brigade and stuff like that and yeah. it's and 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 Paul did too so I think they all sort of have you know you encourage that. Yeah. And, and I want to create an environment where you can try things that you can fall on your face and it's okay. It's a safe space. Yeah. But if you find that thing, that's like, that's the weirdest line I've ever heard. And it <laughs> works and it gets us to where we want to go. That's, yeah. that's the best.
0: Was the, um, because it's something I'm going to take forward into life to people who just annoy me as they kind of be less of a dick um, kind (laughs) of whole thread, which I absolutely love. I actually used it with my kid yesterday and, you know, it's but he watched it with me, so it's like he knows the context of it. But it's just, it's so, I was crying with laughter at that whole section. It's just,
1: yeah, yeah, it's it's so good. It is such a, it it is a very, it's a very weird uh, thing, (laughs) but we love the idea that, Cassie has this sort of—that's her version of. of uh, she's a very idealistic character, and that's her very simplified version of like. It's very simple. Yeah. Just don't don't be a dick. Yeah. Never too late to stop being a dick. It's
0: so good. It's, it's, it's yeah, the
1: simple. philosophy. It's her philosophy. Yeah. It works. Uh,
0: music, Christoph Beck, you know, walked through all these films with yeah. you on it as well, and knowing how much of a pull through there is from the music, and knowing how much you know, New Worlds, you're taking him into musically and things like that. But in this film as well, it's really great because, you know, we have the, that opening, Paul's kind of, you know, narration walking down the street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's got its own kind of lovely kind of jovialness to it with regards to the to the score. And then you, yeah. then there's everything else on top of that within this. Yeah. Where do you start with Christoph with, with this and what is the pull through from the other films?
1: Music is the thing just in general that keeps me going in life. And, and music and film are inseparable to me because yeah. they, they both work, uh, they both work or don't work based on rhythm and tonality. And, uh, I started out as an editor. So r- rhythm is, and music is crucial to me. Chris and I have worked together. Chris scored my first movie, Bring It On, you know, which, how, how do you score a, a competitive cheerleader comedy? And Chris just knocked it out of the park. <laughs> um, and then Chris and I, having done all three Ant-Man movies together on the first one, I remember it was like, I want to do a thing where, at that point, none of the other Marvel movies had that. It was like, I want an identifiable Ant-Man theme. Mm-hmm. The way the John Williams Superman theme <clears throat> was so identifiable. And Chris did it and knocked it out of the park. Sort of expanded, and particularly in Quantum Mania, when we got a chance to do it, I was like, "Are you in?" He's like, "Yeah, man, this is going to be epic, and we're going to the quantum realm, and so it's got to do all this stuff." And he just, he just gets it, man. And mm-hmm. and the fact that we, on this one, you know, we recorded Abbey Road, which, oh wow, I mean, yes. uh, I, getting to go to the scoring sessions and just hear it live in the room, mm-hmm. um, Chris is such a talent and has done so many different genres for so long. I uh, I'm fortunate to have worked with him on these movies.
0: It interesting, though, knowing how much you, or do you approach this almost as kind of like we know we need a th- we, ne- we know we need certain themes that we bring yes. with us. But this, but, but do you view it as almost like a new movie and a new score in a way with with, with yeah. those bits kind of. Weaved in,
1: yeah. And those are discussions we have early on. At one point, early on, I was like, "Should we do it like just a hint of Ant Man theme, but everything else is really Alien?" Or do we sort of continue these themes and do a sort of more, you know, light motif approach to it, where it's this is Cassie's theme or whatever? And we sort of wound up with this hybrid. Mm-hmm. And then also, Chris composed so much great music, and I keep him involved. You know, he was in all this, the mix sessions, you know, and even the edit sessions, where it's like this this score for this scene is great, but listen to it without the music. He's like, oh, it's so much better because the music's here, whatever. It also is just finding the room and the space of the flow of the thing. Some composers might bristle at that, but Chris just gets it. I think probably all the really good composers do get it. But like Chris just, he knows it's like where it's where there's great value, where it elevates everything and where here we don't need it. Absolutely. There's the scene with uh, Kang when Kang first meets Scott and Cassie in the prison. And he composed this great Mm. score there. And we ended up sort of trading that out and he did this – we play it pretty much dry, but then he introduces this really dissonant tonality very low in the mix that's creepy. And that was like, oh, this is great. <laughs> and and I think on a, something like a Marvel movie, it requires a composer to stay really flexible yeah. and not be thrown by change. This being his third one, he gets it, but oh, he was so all in on this.
0: Yeah, the Kang thing's really interesting because the idea of him, the variance of him as well, and I almost kind of feel like that that's, that tonal thing is almost connected to that in a way. Yeah. And almost like the lineage of him. Yeah. In terms of there are it could be, you know, I think that, that I found that really fascinating. Oh,
1: I love it. Yeah, no, that's it's it's um, it was sort of how we Jonathan's performance as we were shooting, obviously, and then editing.
0: It's and the Shakespearean, stillness. by the way. Yeah. It's so brilliant yeah
1: he's so like there's an economy of movement and a, an economy of language and you it forces you to pay attention mm. and when kang enters he affects the rhythm of the movie in a cool way and we love from the beginning the juxtaposition of that energy versus scott lang's happy-go-lucky energy and paul loved it like that was the thing it's like yeah. oh man this guy's he's like play it. he was <laughs> he, he brought it on the set right it was like you couldn't ignore it and, and we we loved it
0: I love as well that Michelle really gets to kind of you know I'm I, growing up watching her. I mean Greece yeah. too. I'm um, all in. Absolutely. Just kind of you know she's just yeah I love watching her on screen and it was just lovely that there was lots of her to watch.
1: Well, thank you. I am very proud of that. I I you know we brought Michelle into the last movie and sort of just toward the back half of the movie and she's yeah. rescued and then it's like oh I want more. I want mm. answers. And so one of the big things as we started to formulate this movie was. I want to front and center her a little more. And she's the way in. She's the tour guide into the quantum realm. I also love uh, a character motivated by guilt. And Janet Van Dyne has so much guilt, self-imposed guilt, that they have to work through. And it's prevented her from really fully connecting with her daughter now that she's back. She's holding all these secrets and maybe has a little bit of PTSD you know, based on her experiences down there. Uh, And she was so, you know— game to play all of that and I think you feel that in her character, um, which which I love and I love, you know, that again, in this sort of ensemble nature of the movie that, you know, we can briefly move away from Scott Lang and Hope van Dyne and yeah and tell this story because it it creates a rich character for her, but it also really helps set up this personal connection with Kang the Conqueror that our heroes have.
0: Yeah. Were there lots of films that you drew inspiration from, with with in ter- particularly in terms of the quantum yeah. universe, and, yeah, and creating that. I mean, you have to you have to create a whole universe, you yeah. know, and, you know, and so it's kind of okay. What do we put in it? What color? All of that: characters, buildings, everything, movement, sound. Yeah. Were you, did you pull from from you know from your personal kind of I don't know, kind of library of being a film fan. A
1: I did. Well, it was um, it was a number of things. It wasn't just film, but it was Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Amazing. Douglas Adams to me, like the books and the radio show, all that stuff just in terms of, I love the digressive nature of Hitchhiker's Guide. Like it's telling a story, yeah. but it's not a three-act story. It's like, stop and here, we're going to tell you this thing. Um, but that was an influence just in terms of the humor and the sort of high science fiction concepts. And then also just like, 60s, 70s, 80s science fiction paperback covers where, you know, you had these sort of, uh, these artists who had to paint one image yeah. that was supposed to draw a reader into buying that book and reading it. And they're these just incredible landscapes and very fantastical things. The great thing is Will Tay, our production designer, assembled this team of conceptual artists from all over the world. And we really encouraged them, like, open up your portfolios, show us your most whacked out, weird stuff. And maybe there's a place for it in this movie. And the idea that, you know, in the Freedom Fighters we pitched, this has to be a very disparate group of characters. This character seems like he's got a steampunk vibe. This character seems like maybe a photoreal version of an old Hanna-Barbera cartoon. (laughs) And this character, Gentura, is straight out of a Robert E. Howard, like a Conan or Red Sonja thing. Like, that. it had to be able to encompass all that stuff. And then also, like... Oh, these buildings the Freedom Fighters have, those are cool, weird looking things. Oh, wait a second. They're also sentient beings that have some weird symbiotic relationship with the soldiers that live inside them. And they're also soldiers. It's like, yes, give me that. Go go nuts with it because there's a lot of weird stuff in the MCU. We didn't want to be like Guardians or like the Thor movie. We wanted to, you know, stake out our own claim and create the quantum realm. But all of that stuff, electron microscope photography is something we looked at a lot. And, old, and, and just microscopic, how do amoeba move? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Scott and Cassie get attacked by a giant sort of, you know, amoeba thing that has cilia on it. It's like, how do we make this microscopic thing weird and terrifying? That, that stuff was fun.
0: I've got holes. Yes. I love that.
1: <laughs> yeah. And again, that, that character of Ebb, played by David Dosmalshin, who is in the first two Ant Man movies as Kurt the Hacker, the Russian hacker, <laughs> yeah. that character is not in this movie. But, you know, David is my good luck charm. It's like, well, you gotta, we got to figure out a character for I you love to play. That. And he put on the motion capture suit and, and just went to town.
0: So good. For you, were there, what, what, what were those films you talk about for you, music and you can't separate it? When you were kind of growing up, what were the kind of the big moments for you where you recognized that very special relationship between film and music? Or TV and music? The well? first,
1: I'll, I'll tell you, the the, the it, it's everything from cartoons, like watching Johnny Quest as a kid, this old Hanna-Barbera cartoon from the 60s, which has this great, like, jazzy, it's, its what's the, Hoyt Curtin, I think was the composer. Yeah. But it's this action, like, brass and, like, jazzy stuff. That got me excited. first big one for me was the original Planet of the Apes and that Jerry yeah. Goldsmith soundtrack. Still my favorite soundtrack of all time. I'm yeah. a massive John Williams fan, but that Planet of the Apes thing, which doesn't have a recognizable theme in it at all, but mm-hmm. it's this weird atonal thing that sells you on this alien world and it has some great primitive drum and percussion sounds and he used like salad mixing bowls as instruments. It's, it's the most weirdly avant-garde film score of all time and I, I loved it. And then, of course, like everybody, I think of my generation, all the John Williams stuff, like yeah. the, everything with, with Star Wars and all the Spielberg stuff was so iconic and elevated film music to another level and, you know, owed a lot to some sort of the older composers but was something new. You know, I was an obsessive, like, film score collector and all that. It, it means oh, a lot to good. me. I, I, I love it. And, again, I think Chris's stuff is very much in line with, you know, what I liked about it. It is ultimately a big part of the emotion and the exhilaration yeah. of a movie—it's
0: so funny now. I get so angry when I see people leaving at the end of the film before the extra bits. Yeah. Uh, do they have an official title?
1: Those tag scenes. The ta- yeah. From the tag scenes. The tag there's, scenes. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: But I get so annoyed going. What are you doing? You know that there's. You're going to miss <laughs> some really important stuff. How do those work? Do you? Is it kind of like passing the baton type thing? To what? How does it? Yeah.
1: Well, it's a mixed bag. I mean, I think it's something that started obviously early on in the in the <laughs> Marvel movies. And at one point, I think when we were doing the first Ant-Man, um, there was a point where it's like, you know, somebody at Marvel's like, we don't have time. Ta- we can't do these tag scenes anymore. We, the people, you know, they will leave the theater. They're going to miss something. It's like, what are you talking about? Yeah. People love them. And there were a couple of movies in there. I don't know which ones that maybe didn't have them and the audience revolted. <laughs> I can't remember if it was one of the Avengers movies. I can't remember. Mm. But for us, it was, um, in this movie, it's a mixed bag. And this movie, the, the one that we shot that sort of tells you a little bit more about the Kang variants mm-hmm. um, was something we came up with just to tease the audience about, okay, phase five, the thing that's one of the things that's unique about Kang the Conqueror is he is a Nexus being and there are other versions. And here's a yeah. little taste of that. And it, we also were able to sort of recreate this very famous Marvel Comics panel of this council of Kangs, you know, whatever this whole political structure of yeah. the Kangs is. But then in some cases, in the first Ant-Man, you know, uh, the first tag scene was Hope finally getting her wasp suit. Mm-hmm. The second one was the Russos had started shooting Captain America Civil War, in which Scott Lang was going to appear. Yeah. I had the Russos in. They watched Scott Lang and sort of saw how he was playing it and wrote that into their movie. But that was a, a cut-down version of a scene that had yet to be released from Civil War, in which uh Anthony Mackie's Falcon character, who had been in the first Ant-Man— reference to Captain America. Hey, I know a guy who can help us and then it yeah. went to Ant-Man will return and like ah it was it was all about telling the audience like he's going to come back. Yeah. And in this version we do a similar thing but with Kang.
0: Yeah. And the second one as well got massive gasps in yeah. the room. So like proper like ah! yeah yeah yeah. It was so great. It was yeah. it, every hero I think everyone's arms kind of stood on end so I think
1: I think it's become this tradition. Well, it is a yeah. tradition with the Marvel movies and and you, you know you At a certain point, we've we've done some that—in Ant-Man and the Wasp, the first one was a gut punch because we deliberately made this. Everything is tied up in a neat little bow, and then three of our characters dusted out, and people were aghast. Yeah. But then the one after the credit roll in that movie was—everyone was gone, and there was—Scott's giant ant was playing the drums. Like a really sort of whimsical-like weird thing. Yeah. So it can be whatever we want it to be, right? Yeah. Which is fun.
0: And I love that it— it encourages people to stay and appreciate the amount of people oh, yeah. that have worked on the film. Yeah. It's, you're kind of like, and it's still rolling. And it's still rolling. Oh, yeah. It's incredible.
1: Quantumania, we had, I don't know, 16, 17 different visual effects vendors yeah. all over the globe with some amazing artists, like many, many. You see the credits roll, like hundreds, yeah. maybe thousands of like visual effects artists working on these movies. You know, every shot in this movie is a visual effects shot. Yeah. There's over, I think, 2,600 of them. Wow. Um, and they should get their due. Yeah. I mean, it's like they are a crucial part of, of making the movie. Yeah. And we all work very closely together with uh, Jesse James Chisholm, who is our visual effects supervisor. He and I had conversations early on about just the overall aesthetic, but he's the one who's got a, you know, uh, he and uh, our visual effects producer, uh, Fiona, They 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 have to sort of make sure that all these things are in line with each other. It's a big task.
0: It's, yeah, I think it's a lovely thing to encourage people to do. When I think of, this was something you worked on, when I think, when I hear the name of it, I can hear the music instantly, Is Mandalorian. Ludwig's,
1: you know, the... Ludwig's score for that is fantastic.
0: He's big recorder.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Ludwig is, is, he's, I can't say enough great things about him, but yeah, yeah, we, that... Season 2 finale we did for Mandalorian. Wow. Uh, Ludwig's music for that uh, is so great and and so unexpected. It is Star Wars, but it's absolutely different. It's his, his own take on it. It's terrific.
0: Are you doing anything on 3? You've been too busy.
1: No, I didn't do anything on 3. <laughs> we'll see what happens, you know, coming up. But, oh, boy, I, I loved it. I mean, I've known Favreau a long time. Obviously, he was uh, in my movie The Breakup years ago. Yeah. And he And uh, he's created something really nice down there. It was fun to work there.
0: Yeah. Did you know that you were doing the finale? Because that episode was was extraordinary.
1: I came on to do the earlier one with the, uh, the frog lady and the ice spiders. <laughs> yeah. And then, as we were doing – that was the first one we shot of that season – And and John got very excited and then said, we're gonna do this finale thing, and I was like, "Well, I'm." We're kind of developing Quantum Mania. He's like, "Let me just tell you about what we're doing." I was like, "Yes, and then,
0: <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I am absolutely in. Um, I know you've got a lovely. Before we finish, we've got you've got a lovely relationship with Back to the Future as well, and yeah. we've had Robert and Alan on the podcast as well, which was an absolute. Oh, nice! It was so so great as well to yeah to celebrate that relationship and and that film as well.
1: Yeah, I mean. Bob Z was, I, I I did the making of documentaries for Back to the Future 2 and 3, and then I, I wrote the Back to the Future ride at the Universal Studios in wow. Hollywood years ago, <clears throat> and then did uh, worked on the Back to the Future animated series, did these live action things. It was one of my early directing jobs. And then I worked on the making of Forrest Gump as well. But like he, that Bob Zemeckis uh, aesthetic the Back to the Future thing was my sweet spot because it's science fiction, it's comedy. Yeah, the performances are great. The energy of those movies is is fantastic. But yeah, I learned so much from him.
0: And they stand up as well. It's lovely yeah. to rewatch them with, you know, with my kids, almost introducing them to that whole thing as well. Yeah, that's
1: great. and that's Sylvester music, yeah. man, yeah, great.
0: What's next? Do you know?
1: a nap uh, <laughs> coffee a long nap some coffee um, yeah I don't know. We've, you know we've got several things in development yeah. and, and that we're, we're looking at but yeah these these are big projects they take you know all in off and on two, Quantumania 2 maybe two and a half years it's, yeah. a, it's a long time so um, spend a little time with my kids and then uh, we'll see what's next
0: thank you for the film thank you for your time it's such a treat to get to chat to you thanks Pete likewise thank, thank you. you this you. was great thanks so much From Back to the Future, that's the main theme by Alan Silvestri rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with Peyton Reed. My huge thanks to Peyton for taking the time to talk to us at Man and the Wasp. Quantumania is on general release now and is yet another magnificent addition to the Marvel canon. We've been very lucky on the podcast that we've had loads of conversations with people involved with the MCU movies, which you can find all of them at edithbowman.com or wherever you get your podcast. Please do rate, review, and subscribe whilst you're there. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK, and head to our YouTube channel for plenty of bonus content. Next up, then. Well, speaking of MCU and this podcast, uh, there's a really amazing connection, and also a connection with Peyton actually. And what's lovely is that we are going back to the very, very start. When we launched this podcast back in August 2016, there was a good few months build-up of trying to get it off the ground and trying to trying to encourage people to come on board and take part. And we're so grateful to the first person who ever said yes to being interviewed for this podcast. It wasn't the first episode, which was Ben Wheatley, but it was the first ever recording that we did for the podcast. Which then meant that we can go and say, "Oh, ladies and gentlemen." Mr. John Favreau has done an interview for us for this new podcast we want to launch called Soundtracking, and it opened so many doors for us. We are eternally grateful to John Favreau and the team that were around him at the time as well. And we are joyous, so thrilled to celebrate the release of the latest series of The Mandalorian, which hits Disney Plus on the 1st of March. Mr. John Favreau is back on Soundtracking for his hat trick. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then.